Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a writer, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, bananas and betting. Peter Jackson is the chief executive of Flutter Entertainment, the newly renamed FTSE 100 gaming company whose trading brands include Paddy Power, Betfair and FanDuel. The group employs 8,000 people in 16 offices around the world and last year handled 3 billion punters' transactions. As tougher regulation bites at home, Jackson is pursuing expansion overseas, namely trying to build a winning position in the US where sports betting is being legalised. Earlier in his career, he worked in consumer banking at HBOS and Lloyds, led foreign exchange company TravelX and WorldPay UK, the payment processing firm. Michael Gidney is chief executive of the Fairtrade Foundation, the UK arm of a global movement that fights poverty by promoting better terms of trade for 1.7 million farmers around the globe. Its blue and green logo is a familiar sight on supermarket shelves, certifying 4,500 product lines including bananas, coffee, flowers and tea. In recent years, some partners such as Sainsbury's and chocolate maker Mondelez have preferred to develop their own ethical certification, forcing Fairtrade to rethink how it operates. Gidney joined the staff of Fairtrade as Deputy Chief Executive in 2009 and was made Chief Executive in 2012. I started the conversation by asking Peter what he was looking for when he became CEO 18 months ago. I actually have an association with Betfair originally going back to 2013 when I joined the board as a non-exec and when Betfair uh, merged with uh, Paddy Power in 2015 I also stayed on the board as a non-exec director so it wasn't news to me that they were looking for a chief executive and I was in the fortunate position that whilst I had a great job at WorldPay the Americans had come over the hill and decided to buy the business and WorldPay were not going to be around as an independent company for long and uh, Paddy Power Betfair were looking for a new CEO and I had that slightly slightly awkward dance you have if you're a non-exec director with the chairman if you're trying to get the CEO job where I wanted to ask and he wanted to ask me and neither dared ask in case the other said no. Um, but eventually we got there. It was a bit like asking a girl out to dance. I was going to say it's like it's like a dance, a dance around the boardroom. Um, and the and the group then that you've got, because I guess you can, you know, to some degree, if you're there as a Ned, it's a it, it is it is kind of a bird in the hand because you've seen it and so on. Um, but you know, you you're in a market now, tightening regulation. There's competition. There's consolidation, swirling, and technological change. I mean, the the world of gaming and gambling and betting is no longer really spending the afternoon propping up the desk in in the bookies with the race card. It's about placing in-match wages when you're watching you know World Cup game and so on I mean was this kind of a burning platform that attracted you as well I mean I think we we would talk about ourselves as being somewhere that brings entertainment to life um, and you're right you know for people who you know who are watching a you know sports fixture whether that's a you know cricket match tennis soccer as I have to now describe it because of course there's American football mm. um, you know whatever whatever they're watching um, to have a you know have a bet on the uh, on the game you know, definitely brings a bit more excitement to it we are a very global business now so you know whilst there are regulatory challenges in many of the markets that we operate um, they're not always um, you know difficult challenges you know, we're very excited about America at the moment there are not many British businesses that can claim to have a 50% market share in the states but, you know, sports betting's recently been opened up there and that's the position that we have in New Jersey and I'm very proud of the terrific job the team are doing there and did you have to get the the, the globe out when you when you took over because there is the industry is internationalizing you know and, and standardizing and so on so it's for companies like yours to go out there and find those markets where there's opportunity I mean you've been, you've been as far as Georgia and I don't mean you know Georgia in the US 
Yeah, no, look, it's absolutely right. And I, I mean, we're, well, ultimately, we're a digital business. You, know, you referenced our shops earlier. And, you know, whilst we do do a great job uh, under the Paddy Power brand in Ireland and the UK with our retail footprint, you know, really today, you know, we are an online business. Uh, and, and in keeping with all digital businesses, you know, you know, scale is absolutely crucial. You know, if you look at the economics, they flow disproportionately to the scale players. And that's because ultimately digital businesses you know, have a relatively fixed cost base. You know? mm-hmm. And as you can add more customers to them, you drive improved economics. And if you can invest those economics in driving further growth, the thing becomes a virtuous circle. And our industry is the same. And that's why it's important to grow the business on a on an international basis that helps support our tech platform and the investments we're making in various parts of it. But it is also true you need to have national champion brands as well. You know, we we run with different brands in different markets around the world. And when you were there as a, as a non-exec watching and observing and, and counselling and so on, did you did you ever think, God, I could do this better? Look, it's a very different role being a non-exec director to to so being in the in the hot seat. Um, you know, one advantage I would say from moving from being a non-exec, you know, into the chief executive's uh, job is you know you do have a you know a good understanding of the dynamics around the boardroom table, which I think would be very difficult to to grasp. You know, when you're coming in new and trying to learn the the business itself, and of course you have a really good understanding of the team and and the challenges the business faces. Yeah, that's not part of the due diligence you can do otherwise. Uh, you're on the board. Exactly. Mike, to come to you. I mean, there is a similarity here because you um, you know a, a career in international development, but you were a trustee at Fair Trade before um, you stepped in as deputy chief executive. I think it's sort of your tenth anniversary. It is indeed. So, what did you? What 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 were your thought processes as you sort of observed the 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 organisation to begin with? Well, I mean, similar in a way because the, um, the 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 chance of being a trustee, which is obviously very similar to being a, a, a non-executive business, is is you get to see see it up close, but you're you're very conscious of being at one remove. Um, and one of the things that attracted me to 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 join the team, to join the staff, was was the chance to get a bit more stuck in. You know, there's that sort of sense of being so near and yet so far when you're on a board. You know, you, you have a, a governance responsibility, but actually the content was really, really fascinating to me. And actually also at the time, 10 years ago, fair trade was fairly, fairly new um, and it was really in the ascendant and there was just so much to do. So there was a sort of sense of, come on, all hands on deck, you know, jump in. And do you regard this, you know, given your CV, you know, trade craft and, and you know, your I think your first role, we discussed it when I interviewed you a few years ago, you know, you moved to go out to Africa you wanted to see on the ground post live aid what it was like and you and you taught there so you've been intimately linked to the the continent for you know a long mm. time so do you see the CEO role at fair trade it's almost a calling if you like um I don't know if it's a calling exactly but I, I, I mean I guess when I, I, I left uh, university actually I thought I wanted to be a journalist so I, I did an English degree um, and uh, my first job was teaching but that was it in order to get a sort of to travel I guess um, and uh, yeah I, I had a sort of career knock that way in the sense at the moment I started working in Kenya, I saw, I guess, the, the, the sort of shock of, of, of poverty up close. But the thing that, that I thought was actually most inspiring was people just getting on with it. So so there was a level of, sort of practical solutions to solving problems, which I saw in, uh, I was in a place called Nakuru, which is in the middle of in the middle of Kenya, in the Rift Valley. And one of the brilliant things there is it's, it's a sort of meeting place. So it's a market town surrounded by agriculture and people would come into town um, and there was an incredible vibrant informal enterprise sector so uh, panel beating you know recycling bits of old metal into something else cases or bits of old cars or whatever else so a huge entrepreneurial spirit so 
the, the if you like the sort of the live aid idea that Africans are victims or are permanently poor. You know, you I mean, obviously now, but thirty years ago, it was a, a bit of a revelation to me. You go there, and yeah. it's obviously completely different. Huge potential, huge energy, loads of enterprise, and really practical solutions to fighting poverty every day. And I guess that's the th- that's the motivational thing with fair trade. It's all about individual action, and that carries on through. But in, interestingly, I mean, uh, you know, we still have that debate now about what you know that UK Africa relationship. I mean, you know, very recently you know uk charities have still been accused of being the white savior if you like yes. as you lead fair trade how do you make sure that you're you know you've kind of got to be that partner on the ground rather than it's a very good point i mean i, I think eventually all international focused uh, ngos will end up being run from the global south it's completely impractical and and and, and sort of strategically wrong in a way to have a british uh, have a british run international charity what do you mean you you really your your headquarters should be nairobi or something I, I think they'll move in that direction at the moment where we've got to with fair trade is that we are Fifty percent owned by the farmers and workers who who are our clients, partners, beneficiaries, but they are now critically our owners also. So once a year we have a general assembly, um, and it's coming up in a couple of weeks' time, and uh, we all vote on you know, standards, prices, strategy, all of the kind of content of this amazing global initiative. You can get fair trade in 125 countries now, so it really is global, and. The farmers and workers have 50% of the votes, which causes quite a lot of sort of democratic fiddling. It's quite hard. We all have voting cards, the translation booths. It takes time, but it works. So we are now entirely jointly led. And over time, I think that voting share will increase. And it's also important to say that all of our work in Africa, Latin America and Asia is led by locals. So, so the chief exec of Fairtrade Africa is a Kenyan woman. The chief exec of of uh, our Latin American work is a is a, a Nicaraguan woman. That's how it should be. So it's very interesting. It's actually very modern. It's a very modern sort of you know democracy. And you're you're nodding, Peter. I mean, so, the it sounds like it's a, the it sounds like this is the John Lewis model. Um, well, in it's a, way, a partnership. Well, it's sure, and it's and it's it's. I mean, it, one, in, a, in a way, one of the interesting things about it is it's 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 quite a business focused NGO. So we sort of cross the you know cross the divide. It's, it's very like. A social enterprise, Peter. I mean, does it, does it does it relate to you? Because of course you're you're a relatively new FTSE 100 boss, and the the job going back a few years, all you had to do was keep the earnings up, keep the dividends up, keep the shareholders happy. And actually now it's a big group. Let me think. You've got 8,000 people in 16 offices around the world. Stakeholders way beyond that. I mean, it isn't just about delivering the profits anymore. Uh, look, I, I think there's been a lot of sort of dialogue about this recently. I think you know any anybody who focuses solely on that one aspect of things um, is going to sort of you know, it, it's it's just too narrow a focus. Um, I think sustainability is crucial, and and ultimately that's where you know a lot of the focus is coming. Uh, from and to in our sector at the moment from a regulatory standpoint you know I mean I think there are um, you know pockets of competitors who you know are probably not acting in you know in the right spirit of the of the rules and regulations and are not doing the right thing by by our you know by their customers and, and the sort of consumers in our space and I think it, you know it's important um, that you think about all stakeholders you know mm. g- genuinely in, in this space. Uh, Seeing as you've mentioned responsibility it seems to be something that's coming through in in, in the sort of literature and communications from uh, what we now call Flutter Entertainment the new name for the company do you think that you know you want to show leadership in that area but do you think that they're your predecessors if you like not specifically in, in this company uh, there's a degree that the industry has sort of reaped what it's owed? I think that there's always going to be dynamics that flow around regulation. You know, there's a, there's a sort of meta trend 
globally for uh, gaming to be you know to be regulated there's plenty of places where it's illegal there's plenty of places where it's not yet regulated and you know there are increasing numbers of markets where it is regulated and i think you know people are discovering you know that some of the regulations that we use for retail businesses aren't as appropriate for online environments mm. um you know i think as an organization we've always been very progressive i think you know we haven't always shouted about it and i think you know, it's probably not the right thing for us to try and you know, shout too much about it. I think the important thing is to support the industry and try mm. and raise the standards. And I think mm. the extent to which we, you know, we can help improve it, you know, the standards of you know, ourselves and all of our competitors, I think that's, that's a really important So step. what does su- success look like if, if the industry gets that regulatory piece right? I mean, I think at last count there were 400,000 problem gamblers in the UK. I mean, clearly, you know, in our in our sector, you know, there are you know a number of uh, problem gamblers, and there's d- different ways that people would would define that. I think you know what's really important from from my perspective is that you know we can continue to allow customers and consumers who are you know want to have a want to have a punt on something to do it in a sociable and enjoyable and safe environment. And I think for people who um, find it difficult to to control their spend, we need to make sure that they utilise the tools that we make available for them. And ultimately, if we find that people are doing things which we don't think are right, we need to intervene and stop them. But that's definitely in a, in a, in a very small minority. I think you know, in gambling, as in you know, in alcohol and you know, many other sectors, there are excesses, and I think you know, we have to make sure that we face into and address those. The reality is that we do have a lot of data. We spend a lot of time engage with a lot of our customers, and you know, unfortunately, though, there are going to be cases that come through where. People have spent more money than they yep. than they should do, yep. and we have to make sure we learn from that and and you know build it into our systems and processes. Yeah, yeah. Mike, to talk about you and fair trade and and standards because you are nothing without the reputation of of the brand, the blue and green logo that everyone knows from the supermarket shelves. Just describe the scale of the mission, if you like, because you are uh, you have a team of a hundred. Guess most of them are probably based in London. But then, if you're if the role here is to certify, you know, ethically produce coffee and bananas and so on, then you must have a whole sort of empire of of people who are tracking the the quality right through Ivory Coast and beyond. Oh, it's it's certainly true. Fairtrade has become big business over the last few years. So uh, globally, uh, sales grew about eight percent last year, just over eight billion euros. Um, as I say, you can get Fairtrade in one hundred and twenty-five countries, markets um, from seventy-five countries worth of, of 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 producers. It starts with standards. So uh, we have a set of standards. If your product meets our standards, you can you can become Fairtrade certified. Um, the standards are really robust. So there are. It's essentially the triple bottom line of of, mm. of of social enterprise. So you know, economic standards. So you have to pay a minimum price. You have to pay a, an additional premium to the community. Uh, environmental standards, really rigorous standards around pesticide use and good agricultural practices, climate change mitigation and adaptation, and then also social standards. Mm. Um, so, for example, if you're a smallholder in fair trade, you're a smallholder coffee farmer or a smallholder um, a cocoa farmer, um, and most of the world's coffee and, and cocoa still are you know, grown from uh, smallholders. Uh, you have 150 different compliance criteria. So, you know, these are really robust standards. So it takes yeah. it takes energy to review those, but then also we have to police them. So there's a, a, an arm of auditors. There's an organisation Well, I was going to say, how many, how many people out, do you have out there? I mean, this is a lot of people with clipboards. Oh, well, it, well, it's interesting Interesting uh, talking about the, the move to digital, as we were earlier, because, uh, yes, there are, there are people with clipboards, and, yes, there are farm visits, there are unannounced inspections. But increasingly, we're looking at blockchain technology. Mm. So uh, we have something called Fair Trace, which is a, a virtual handshake, essentially, between buyer and 
seller, which should speed up and codify a lot of the stuff mm. that was done, uh, you know, face to face. However, you also still need the face to face. Yeah. And in, in a way, one of the most interesting developments in, that I've seen in fair trade the last few years is we're moving f- we're moving from a sort of compliance uh, methodology, which is you know a tick box: do you meet our standards? Yes, no. That's really important as a baseline. But the most interesting stuff is what's going on around the audits so the uh, producer networks we have networks of extension workers across the global south um, who work with the farmers to help them get the best out of certification help them mm. help them build their businesses help them decide what kind of route to market is best for them do they want to diversify how do they become more competent as social enterprises locally um, and that's where the magic happens and that's where our extension workers on the ground are really helping well as a journalist i've tried to make audit um, sound sexy on, on a number of occasions and it's always been a bit well, of a challenge it's a, it's a but how do you point, sit i'm interested so you 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 have to sit at the at the helm and you have to you have to be able to trust the the tools and the people beneath you i mean there are laps that, that always um, are. And, and and is that just part of life? Um, well, I, I think perhaps one of the one of the the sort of, le- sort of lessons for me over fair trade, because we're twenty five years old this year. Um, the fair trade the mark, mark is, the is fair yes, trade yeah. mark is twenty five years old. Uh, I've worked very hard to ensure that fair trade uh, is humble, is accurate in what we what we talk about uh, in public. Um, and you know, so we are. You know, so, if, for example, child labour in cocoa, it's endemic. It exists. You know, it, it, it is a really serious problem, not just in cocoa, but in many other categories across the world. It's a feature of poverty. It's it's exacerbated by poverty. So we have a a whole way into that, which starts with paying farmers fairly. But to say that there is no child labour ever in cocoa and you will never have it in your supply chain is is wrong. So the way we've tried to approach this is by speaking honestly to the public, saying this is a problem, here are the problems, they exist, incrementally, little by little. You know, piece by piece, we can help yeah. to improve that. But you, I mean, it is piece by piece. But you still have a universe to go at. I think something like six percent of the world's cocoa production is is certified by you. Exactly. So right. there's a lot. Absolutely. You're not right. going to do yourself out of a job anytime soon. Well, you know, I mean, wouldn't that be great? Um, and, <laughs> and then we could do other things. But the 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 problem at the moment is, as much as there's been massive progress in the whole sustainability industry over the last 20, 30 years, companies, you know, really waking up to the social and environmental impacts mm. of their of their activities. Yeah. The problem is that still too many people aren't recognizing the importance of sharing value you know there's just too much poverty at the wrong end of the supply chain at Mm. the sharp sharp end of the supply chain Mm. that needs to be solved Mm. peter let me switch to you so um you took over at the start of last year the company you inherited is created by a merger i think in 16 tell me about culture you've just rebranded the holding company did you find that you had a them and us when you got in there some betfair people some paddy power people i mean i think you, know, you could probably have a Harvard uh, Business School case study on the on the merger between Paddy Power and Betfair because actually a lot of people at um, Betfair had worked at Paddy Power. So Brian Corcoran, uh, who was the chief executive of, uh, of, of of Betfair, had been the sort of chief commercial officer at Paddy Power and brought a lot of people with him mm. um, when he uh, when he took over running Betfair. And so actually, when the businesses came together. You know, a lot of people on both sides knew each other, um, and you know I think to some extent that was uh, that was very helpful. Uh, it meant that the cultures were actually you know uh, mm. quite quite similar. And you know we found a similar thing when we bought uh, the Fanjul business uh, in the US, which is US sports. <clears throat> yeah, it was a daily fancy uh, sports business, which was sort of uh, legal mm. in in America when sports betting uh, wasn't. 
actually you know Nigel who founded that business had a very long time ago worked for a business called Flutter which had you know been acquired by by Betfair and so you know when you go back and trace the, the sort of the cultural starting point of what Nigel did with that business it had some similarities with you know with the Paddy Power Betfair business so I think if you can find those cultural overlaps it makes a right. big difference I don't insist that our cultures are the same around the world, though. And if I look at our business in Australia, Sportsbet, fantastic business. You know, it's the number one uh, corporate uh, bookmaker in the market. It's a very different context for the folks in Sportsbet, you know, down in Australia, based out of Melbourne, to the team who are running the Paddy Power business. Yes, they're both challenger brands, but you've got to have the right culture that suits the brand and the market context that the colleagues in that business operate in. I think that's really important. You know, it's it's it, if you if you try and run a a, a, a global business, but in 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 a, in a way which is too homogenised, it's really easy to get it wrong, isn't it? Just thinking about fair trade, fair trade is expressed really differently, say in Switzerland, from the way it is in the UK. In the UK, it's much more sort of a campaign focus. In Switzerland, it's much more B two B. Um, and the what's important to consumers and businesses in Australia is is really quite different, as you would know anyway. But you know, in fair trade also from that in the states. So so then you need different people, or you need different cultural values, don't you? And how, how do you drive collaboration in fair trade? So I was going to ask you about that earlier because it's it's interesting listening to you talking about this, the challenges that they you know the the farmers whether it's you know cocoa sure, or, yeah, yeah. or you know whatever it is going how you know how do you just share best practices and stuff you know between them when you spot things that are it's working a well really good question and it's and it's absolutely sort of top of our agenda at the moment so so we I think we haven't got it right uh, we we're collaborating more than we ever have before but it's it's still quite hard to to find a way of, of sort of winkling out good practice from one place and transposing it into another the way we've tried to approach it is is uh, the chief execs of the different aspects of fair trade. Uh, meet regularly. We share, we try and share as much as we possibly can. There are a number of different initiatives now where we're trying to, for example, in cocoa, we're trying to get to a living income in cocoa for cocoa farmers. The market is way below that, and we need to try and ratchet this up. Um, it's really hard. You need to get, the, you need to sort of get the leading businesses on side. You need to get consumers interested. You need to get governments interested. And as it happens, uh, we're sort of experimenting with different aspects of that around the world. So the Belgians have just done a really brilliant living income campaign. The Australians have been working with the Australian and actually the New Zealand government on modern slavery and whether that's also a way in. So we're trying to sort of bring together different bits of learning. We just have to keep raising it internally. There's no formal mechanism. We just have to sort of create a level of interest and mutual benefit as well. What about the front line, Mike? How do you, um, you know, keep in touch? Do you feel you have to be you're in Africa twice a month or something? Oh, uh, no. Um, and uh, I mean, for a bunch of reasons, family being one. Um, mm. It's exam season at the moment, so I don't particularly want to travel. Our son's 15. Um, the, um, but also, you know, climate change, uh, cost. Uh, we, we're trying to, as, as, as far as possible not to duplicate. So, for example, this, there's, there's a, a really important meeting in Ecuador this week looking at bananas. Colleagues are going, I don't have to. So it's being run by people in Latin America, and there is uh, my opposite number in Holland is going. So I'll get it. I, I've, I've worked with him before he went. Mm. Uh, he's feeding back to me. So it's a way of sort of being in two places at once. Probably Emma Thompson will go as well. You should give you a well, ring. I mean, there's, 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 your, there's your challenge, isn't it? You know, flying in from a, for a party. Yes, yeah. Peter, what's your style of management? No, I mean, I think it's, you know, it evolves over time, doesn't it? I mean, if I, I was chatting to a colleague this morning, I mean, I think I try and do three things really. I want to make sure the people in the business know where we're going what our sort of direction is um, i hate calling it strategy because i don't really know what that means but i think you know making sure people are really clear about the direction we're, we're headed in 
the communications across the business to make sure it's you know, so everybody, all 8,000 colleagues in the business understand what their role is and making sure we have the very best people we can. So for me, it's the sort of direction, it's the communications and the people. And I've learned over time, actually, great people don't want to be told what to do. You know, so, you know, people call it micromanagement, whatever. I prefer to call it being a dictator. I think, you know, no one wants to work for a dictator. Um, and so I think you know, that it is really important that the positive way of looking at it is you, you need to give great people empowerment. But if they know where they're going, they're going to get there. I read an interview with you from, from years gone by uh, preparing for this. And I think the writer said, well, oh, he's very clever, you know, but very clever people don't always make great leaders. Have you, have you in any way had to sort of moderate how you, you do things? You don't want to sort of throw all the ideas out and say, get on with it? Look, I mean, take take our business. You know, there's 8,000 colleagues across yeah. the organisation, right? Am I going to be the source of good ideas in the business? Absolutely no way. Mm. You know, there's 7,999 people who have got much more experience mm. uh, in, in our space than I have. So my, I, that's why I do see it as my role, is, is to make sure that I'm you know, creating the right supportive environment for them. They need to know where they're going. We need to have great people. We need to... Uh, encourage and reward and incentivize them. I think ultimately, you know, clever people can try and sort of fiddle with things too much. You know, I think you know it's it can be tempting to sort of tweak and change the strategy because it's sort of intellectually rewarding, but actually it's not helpful. You know, what, what's much more important is that people have got clarity around where we're going. Yeah, and actually heading slightly in the wrong direction, but having the whole organisation heading there yeah. is much better than having people sort of partially headed, you know, in one direction, you know, and then tweaking and changing it, you know six months later. Probably why academics don't make great CEOs. But your point is right though, isn't it? It, it makes a much more exciting place to work if the senior management don't have all the ideas. You know, if you if you if you allow people to to bring their own ideas to the table and then and then to sort of run with them a little bit. Um, it it's, it makes it much more kind of creative and exciting. Mike, I want to talk a bit about challenges and you I think a challenge you you've had to time change the tone a little bit in your sort of seven years in charge. I, I'd like to know the times when Sainsbury said, you know, Sainsbury's the biggest retailer of fair trade mm. and there was a time a couple of years ago they said sorry mike we're, we're pulling out they wanted to do their own certification program on, on tea on tea yeah. absolutely just on tea but even if it's just tea that must be a, a bit of a setback i'm interested in your view on that what what was it like when the phone rang we knew we, we knew they had ideas that they wanted to try and pilot into yeah. and, 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 and you know, pretty much we will we will work with anybody who who, who wants to do to, you know, to make a difference you know, because our, the whole point of fair trade is is to do trade differently so it works for the sure. farmers and workers um, and you know we yeah we had it we, you know, we, we didn't agree about the way they should go about their tea work we wanted to support them wherever we could but you know the, the final analysis actually what what made the the change was farmers in Kenya <laughs> not being happy. So, you know, that, that was very much a sort of a key moment for us. But the really good news is we're working with them in lots of other products. They are still, by a long stretch, the largest retailer of fair trade in the mm-hmm. world. We're doing really interesting work with them on uh, bananas in, in Latin America. I mean, in, in a way, I think, I, th- I think that maybe that's a sort of microcosm of what's going on in fair trade more broadly. Or take, take the sort of the whole landscape of sustainable and responsible business more broadly. Over the last 20 years or 25 years, the landscape is changing completely. It's not enough now for any company to, to just be looking at sort of profits to a sort of narrow lens. There's a, a, a much, and rightly so, much greater focus in long-term sustainability. Um, now, that's, a, that's you know, we haven't all of us got it right. You know, we need better regulation, not total regulation, but just smarter where it's useful. Mm. We also need to understand individual responsibility better. What does that mean for us as consumers? And that's exactly the point you were saying. You know, you can't regulate out a tendency to, to uh, 
overconsume mm. in, in, in whatever it is. So there are there are challenges. The I think the, 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 in a way the, the dynamic for us in fair trade is even if the the rest of the world was steady state, you know, imagine for a minute, um, fair trade is trying to change something. So we're trying to change the way uh, the food business works. That was where our starting point for mm. all trade really, so that it works from the bottom up rather than the top down. We're trying to change the world as it happens. Also, in the last ten years, more than that, certainly the food business has changed out of all recognition. So we're trying to change a world which is changing even faster. So for us internally, the challenge always is how do we anticipate the next levels of change? Where are the next disruptors coming from? You know, if you look in supermarkets, where the you know, supermarkets margins have sort of halved in yeah. the last five years because of the arrival of the discounters and online and all kinds of other sort of changes in consumer habits, um, how do we sort of outpace that and position ourselves so that we can still encourage that long-term focus on proper sustainability? Because it, it, the concern is that there's, you know, clearly businesses are aware of, of the, the social and environmental impact and they're trying to operate accordingly. But it does mean you, you can kind of, as a consumer, you can have mm. lots of different marks on the shelf in the supermarkets and you kind of want simplicity rather than, you know, it's great Mondelez, you know, with, with your help are now certifying, I think, five times the volume of, of cocoa that they were. But does a consumer recognise what cocoa life means versus the, the blue and green of fair trade? Well, I mean, I, I, as I said earlier, you know, I've, I've tried hard to ensure that fair trade is honest. Um, and uh, so very sort of transparent in the way. I think you way. are definitely lost to journalism with all this talk about honesty, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm really, really sorry, but I mean, the, you know, actually, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be in it for as long as I have been if if, if, if we're sitting on a whole load of sort of skeletons in the closet. There really aren't any. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, fair trade is is by far the best known, best trusted ethical yeah. trade scheme in the world. In the UK, we just had um, sort of latest consumer uh, research actually in a, in a number of different countries. More than ninety percent of the British public recognise the fair trade mark. More than eighty percent of them trust it. And increasingly, uh, people are looking, you know, active choice, they're looking to put it in their shopping baskets. Mm. Now, that's an incredibly important mm. opportunity, a mandate to talk to companies, but it's also really easily lost. Yeah. So, I mean, this, this is an interesting question, isn't it, when we're talking about, about brands and authenticity. Yeah. And I think in the future, there may well be lots of companies who want to claim different things. But because of social media, because of increasing cynicism, increasing sophistication in the public, mm. uh, you know, the kind of bullshit detector, if you excuse my language, is, we can, is, we can run know, that. is fairly clear, isn't it? And and uh, the, those brands who will survive and thrive will be the, one, the ones who mm. speak honestly to consumers and don't trample the wool over their eyes. So has it become harder in the seven years you've been in charge? I mean, the dynamic has changed. You've got to take these hundred people who, I guess, like you, they have to be fair trade fanatics. Is it hard for you to sort of say, pick them up and go, right, we're doing this now and we're accelerating? Well, even if the world had been a steady state, so even if yep. the grocery sector hadn't changed, we would want to be redoubling our efforts. So the more I mean, we, fair trade in many ways has only just started. You know, we're starting to find a way of delivering benefit to the farmers, but now we are working with them much more in partnership because mm. they're on our, in our governance. Mm. Then, then the challenge is, okay, do more, go faster, go further. So, yeah, there's a lot of work still to do. Peter, tell me about skills. You, you've, had, you've worked for a number of organisations. When's the moment when you thought, yeah, I'm boss material now? I think for, for me, I'd look at the question in a, in a different way, James. Right? You know, I'm... I'm yeah, you know, sort of scare myself when I think about this, but now I'm 43. Shocking. Yeah. Um, and that feels old, right? Because I can remember when I wasn't 43. I'm going to be working when I'm 75 because I'm I'm not going to retire. So, what is the world going to be like in 32 years? How much will we have had to learn and develop 
uh, in 32 years. Now, I'm not just talking about the you know the iPhone 26 or whatever it'll be that being yep. implanted under our you know thumbs by then, but just the whole management practices have, have totally changed. You know, um, think about how different the world was you know 32 years ago, and the rate of change is much more exponential than it was in the past. And so I think you know the sort of concept of lifelong development is mm. is crucial. And so I think you know anybody who would sort of sit here and say I'm done is you know. It, the only person they're kidding is themselves. Yeah. So. Okay. So it is. It is. Um. You know. You're not the finished article. No. No. no you know. I. I have a sort of. In. In my mind's eye, I try and spend half a day a month on development for myself. You know. No, and I might go and do that in a block. So you know, a couple of years ago, I went and did a week at Harvard, which was just you know brilliant. It was. A, you mm. know, I've never been to business school, and it was just a really good opportunity to sort of step back with some other fascinating people from around the world learn about some, some of the, you know, where some of the modern thinking is going, whether it's that or, you know, reading books or attending stuff, you know, you've got to keep yourself current. And mm. I think that's absolutely crucial. I want to, I want to delve back a little bit and, and talk about Travelex. You, you were, you were doing, you know, great things and processing up through H Boss and Lloyd's and so on, but you worked very hard to get yourself on that list to, to get the job to run Travelex, the foreign exchange group, and you got it you know, very uh, 35 or something like that, probably possibly younger. So interested in, in why you targeted that. And then tell me about the relationship with, with Lloyd. You're working there for a very, very active chairman and founder. To what extent did he let you get on with it? I had a great career in uh, at H Boston and Lloyd's, you know, actually working through the financial crisis. I mean, you know, just learned some incredible lessons and had some amazing experiences. In fact, you know, listening to Mike talk earlier about Kenya, I was reminded of a... Emma and I managed to take a few days uh, holiday. Uh, and actually, we were, go- we were going to go to Kenya. Mm. Uh, we were going to go and watch the wildebeest migration. Okay. And I was really worried at the time that I was going to be out of contact from the office. And so I said to Emma, I think we're probably going to have to cancel because I'm just, uh, you know, I'm not sure I can sort of be gone for a week. Anyway, in the end, I sort of convinced myself that we should, that we should go. And actually, to convince myself, I took a satellite phone with me because I thought, you know, the uh, you know, lack of stay in touch. And I remember we were we were on on our sort of in our tent in the middle of the, in the you know the middle of nowhere, and I'm trying to get this satellite phone to work and can I, <laughs> to call back home, and it just wouldn't. And I had my mobile phone in my pocket, and I thought I'll just try my mobile phone. I switched it on. I had full bars of service, and it worked better than when I was in London. So you know the, that was a good lesson for me. And was there a problem? Uh, Did they uh, need you? No, no. But I, I mean, they, they, of course, they didn't need me. So you know, um, no, no one's ever that important. Yeah. But, you know, so I, I had a, you know, I learned a lot going through my the sort of you know, the, the financial crisis. And I, you know, there, there was a point in time where I realised actually I didn't like the sort of the situation I found myself. I wanted to and do something different and I you know and I saw in the papers that the uh, CEO of Travelex had left and I'd met Lloyd over the years a couple of times and so I I picked the phone up and I rang him mm. and I said Lloyd I see there's a there's a job available I'd like to do and you know it took a bit of time to uh, uh to persuade him and uh, I think you know the, the reality is that a lot of uh, much better people than me looked at it and decided they didn't dare want to go and do it and so I I ended up uh, running the business and yeah, it was it was fantastic. I remember you know, Lloyd couldn't have been more supportive. I remember him sitting down with me when we were discussing and starting, and, and you know Lloyd's position was that he wanted me to be the best CEO the business had ever had, and he did everything he could to support me. He was there when I needed him, 
uh, and you know when I needed some space, he he gave me the space. So, so a real enabler because the the, the the brief history there is there had been other CEOs before there hadn't been they'd failed the chemistry test effectively, and you were his choice as opposed to the private equity firm's choice, and and it did and it, and it prospered as a result. Yeah, look, my, my dad's an entrepreneur. He, he had a garage in in North Yorkshire, and so you know I'd hope I could have a conversation, you know, sort of conviction conversation, which is what you sort of have to have with entrepreneurs because that's the type of conversation I would have had with my dad. But I also know how to have a sort of detailed you know excel based conversation you know very analytical one because i spent time at mckinsey so i could probably translate a bit and i think that was a useful yeah. piece that other yeah. people hadn't had mike tell me uh, in the seven years you've been in charge are you a better leader now what and what skills have you picked up on the way uh, i i yeah I, I feel more confident i guess in in in, in where we are and what we're, where we're going but um in a way one of the interesting things and it goes back to what to, to what pitch was saying the more the more i do it the less i know in a way you know or the more confident i am of what i don't know you know and and, and i guess that's, that's that sort of goes hand in hand with knowing certain things and knowing what you're good at and what you're not so good at. But that really helps, I think, in terms of building a team. You know, so so you, like we were saying earlier, if you if you try and hold on to everything and control everything and make all of the decisions, you're unlikely to be very motivating or enabling for your for your colleagues. In a, a sort of mission-driven organisation like Fair Trade, people, I mean, we see it through us. We have regular staff surveys, as as, as you know, you'd expect. And one of the things that we see coming through all the time is people having a really strong identification with the mission. So therefore. Well, the trick is to try and enable them to yeah. sort of give of their best. So in a way, going back to so what, what I've learned, um, I've learned to be, to, I think, I, I would hope I'm a better delegator. Um, I try really hard to listen. Um, there are always terrific ideas around, you know. And so then the question is, how do you sort of separate the, you know, the really doable ideas from ones which are sort of just maybe, you know, not for now or whatever? Two weeks ago, we had a learning week because it was National Learning Week. And we had a ball pit in the office, um, which was, you know, a couple of hundred quid, incredibly well spent. And I just sat in a ball pit and people came in and just chatted. Ideas, thoughts, challenges. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of silly gizmos you can use. But the idea of just creating a, 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 a situation where people feel really happy to say whatever to you, I think, is incredibly important. So that just, just, to fill out that, just to fill out that image, so it's, a, it's sort of a plastic pool with lots of plastic balls in it. it it's sort exactly of, it's one right. step away from a, a bath of baked beans, really. Pretty much. <laughs> um, but, I mean, so, so, you know, the idea was it was it, it was a sort of leveller. So, you know, yeah. there, there are, in any organisation, ours is nothing like as big as yours, but in any organisation, there are some people who are very shouty and very happy to come forward and others who are really nervous or don't like to sort of speak and so the idea was can we create something which is just human and a bit silly and yeah. a leveler and it really worked we had ex extraordinarily valuable conversations and and the, the 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 point is fair trade as i was saying the fair trade mark is 25 this year we're really thinking about what next yeah I'm not going to be the only person who comes up with those ideas. If I, if, if I mean, I'm, I'm far too limited in what I can do. So, so, so if we can sort of find ways of mm. facilitating that sort of idea creation in the team, then that's great. And what about mentors? And who's helped you? Who's helped you behind the scenes? Or are you have you been off to sort of the business schools as well? No, I haven't, and it's I mean, it's interesting hearing what you say. I mean, I I, um, I I try hard to make time for my own development. A lot of that is to do with um, finding opportunities to have conversations with people who are slightly off off radar, if you like. Um, one of my uh, earliest uh, mentors, who I still uh, speak to, is a, a, a woman who um, runs a children's home in Kenya, and she uh, it's it's like the NSPCC, the main uh, mm -hmm. sort of adoption agency in in uh, Kenya, and she's now very senior. She's been there for you know, thirty years. Uh, since I first started working with her. Um, and one of the things which I, I, I love about talking to her is she's sort of always a little bit unimpressed 
um, in the sense of, yeah, that's fine, but you've still got loads more to do, which I so like. You're not actually. dishing out praise then where, where it might be Well, no, be it's, just, it's just, just that sense of, you know, just understand the road still to travel. Okay. You know? And I, I find that really motivating because it's, I guess it's, you know, something like fair trade, which is a long-term single-issue campaign, which is going to take us decades to solve. Um, you need to have that sense of, that sense of, okay, yes. this is good, but it's not enough. Yeah, Peter, do you have people like that telling, saying, well, this is fine, but what next? I mean, I think I, there's lots of different people I've worked with uh, over the years who I've learned a huge amount from. Yeah, you know, I'm actually a member of an organisation uh, called YPO. Uh, it started out in in the states, the Young Presence Organisation. That's something which I found to be you know very helpful. I mean, it's like it's sort of like having my own sort of personal board, effectively. The sort of the forum I'm in, uh, in terms of you know a, a group of forum buddies who are sort of there for me in in the same way that I'm there for them, and and that's that's been I see. So a good very, so very a network helpful. they. You will slot into a fully fledged network then. Well, actually, I mean, there's eight of us, and we get together, um, you know, ten times a year, so you know, approximately once a month for four hours. Mm. And there's a lot of trust been built up over the years between us. It's the same, so typically the same sort of group of people. Occasionally, people sort of you know, come and go from it, but it's a very trusting environment, and we can talk about the interaction between our work life, our you know, personal lives, whether that's you know yourself or family and friends, because. Yeah, you know, people talk about this work-life balance stuff, but you know, ultimately, you know, you are just one person, and I think you know, just the interaction between all those things is is really is really important, and mm. finding people who can help provide you this sort of holistic support in that is it, 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 unusual because most people do actually sit in one of those camps and are biased to some degree yeah you you said you pointed out you were 43 i mean is the why still appropriate do you need to rebrand yeah, I've got, this I've got, I've got i've got two more years james <laughs> is that right is yeah. that is <laughs> people get you get thrown out at 45 yeah, you do oh, yeah. oh what does that make me i'm 53 yeah. well you, yes well geriatric exactly. Um, exactly. Tell me about uh, governance, Mike. And there's, there's criticisms of you know some charities haven't quite got it. There's been sort of things over the years about you know how the money's looked after and, and so on. How how is how do you protect that at, at Fair Trade? I know you brought on uh, Lord Mark Price, the mm-hmm. sort of doyen of children's books and Waitrose as your as your chairman. Well, Mark's also a good chess player, so he's great on strategy. But um, governance is incredibly important. It goes back to this idea of you know, the, the concept of, of uh, authenticity and sort of delivering what people expect of you. So charities have a particular responsibility uh, for for good governance, but all of us do. Uh, we spend a lot of time, and we have for years, uh, spent a lot of time investing in, in uh, the right kind of board. Fair Trade is run by a charitable trust, the Fair Trade Foundation, um, and our non-execs are also trustees. Um, uh, they're really high caliber we work really hard to support them uh, don't always get it right um, but it's it's pretty professionally run and and you have to be you know so so uh, d- d- information is incredibly readily available and and uh, I mean that's why as you say there have been a number of scandals in in charities I would say though that that um, if you think about some of the, the sort of the bigger scandals like um, Oxfam I, I work a lot with Oxfam I've known Oxfam for years in different ways um, and you know they're really well run they made they made some mistakes in in, in, in certain areas which are obviously significant and they've really been hit hard for that but sometimes in the press you might read that that's that therefore all charities are you know uh, at risk in that way and I, I think we have to be really careful to spot the governance problems where there are mm. governance problems solve them because that's absolutely right and proper mm. um, and make sure those mistakes aren't made again mm. but not to tar a whole sector with the same brush. Mm. Peter to what extent does luck come into being a great leader I mean you have to sort of make your own luck and do things like if you want the job at TravelX you've got to ring up TravelX. Bring me lucky generals, you know. I mean, that's uh, yeah. It def it's definitely important. No, I mean, I think you know there are there are some things you can do to try and improve your odds. Whether that's about you know furthering your own 
skills, uh, putting yourself forward uh, when others when others won't, or um, you know, lots of different things people try. Okay, wonderful. Peter Jackson from Flutter Entertainment, Mike Giddy from Fair Trade. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to season one of Leading with me, James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review. Thank you.